2: on this episode of newt's world in part two of my discussion with dwight chapin we talk about watergate dwight thank you for your candor about watergate i think 50 years later it's still fascinating to hear an account from someone who was working in the nixon white house at the time After all this, Nixon wins one of the largest election victories in history. The momentum seems to be there. And then the Watergate scandal breaks, which really began June 17, 1972, with a break-in of the Democratic National Committee headquarters by some guys who really were stunningly incompetent. I mean, this was sort of a low-level screw-up that then evolves into a cover-up, and it's the cover-up that really begins to be like a cancer. You end up... And I've never understood this. I mean, you were the first to go on trial because of Watergate, although you weren't involved in Watergate. So how did that happen?
1: Okay, so this is very important, Newt. There's Watergate, which we know as the major crime with the cover up and so forth. The part that I was involved in is way over at the side and would be called the prankster type stuff or dirty tricks. I had hired a college roommate to go out and to do prankster, what we call Dick Tuck type activities. Dick Tuck was a Democratic prankster, round for years, and had always been doing stuff on Richard Nixon. I was called into the Oval Office in around February of 1971, and Bob Haldeman and Nixon are sitting there, and the buzzer had gone off, I'd been called in, and It was a very simple question. Do you know anyone who we could get to do Dick Tuck type stuff on the Democrats when the next election cycle comes up? I said, let me think about it. And I went off and I hired my friend Don Segretti, who had been a roommate at USC. It was a mistake I made but I didn't consider it a mistake at the time. To me, it was a very logical request because I knew exactly what the men meant. I would known Dick Tuck for years. Down at the Bush convention in New Orleans, I run into Dick Tuck on the floor of the convention. He's got every GOP credential known to mankind hanging around his neck. Most of my friends didn't have as many credentials to get around the Republican convention as Dick Tuck did. I mean, he just had this knack, and it was funny stuff. And I knew him personally, obviously.
2: Let me break in for one second, Do I? We've always had this problem being with conservatives and Republicans, that the media will think something done by a left-winger is funny, and something done by us is a threat to the republic. And I remember one of the stories after, I guess, maybe the first debate, Tuck hiring an older woman to stand at the foot of the plane. And when Nixon came off to say, it's okay, you'll do better next time. And that was sort of a classic. Now, Tuck was a genius at psychological warfare, which was fine if you were a liberal Democrat. When we tried to do the same thing, it was, of course, a threat to the very republic.
1: Yes, one of my favorite Dick Tuck stories was that when Nixon was running in 1960 against Jack Kennedy, Nixon goes to Chinatown in the San Francisco area. And there's this big banner behind where Nixon is speaking. It's in Chinese. And the banner in Chinese says, vote for JFK. I mean, (laughs) Nixon didn't know the difference, but Tuck had put the banner up. I mean, it was that kind of stuff.
2: So why does that get you in trouble?
1: So that gets me in trouble because when Woodward and Bernstein and the Washington Post start investigating and looking into creep. They come across the fact that the creep operation had some people that were out doing stuff worse than what Segretti was doing, the guy I knew
2: we should say by the way, for listeners, creep was the committee to reelect the president
1: yeah, the committee to reelect the president. They had made a decision at one point that I was not aware of that Don Segretti should be put under. Howard Hunt and G Gordon Liddy. And although Don never did anything for them, they had met with him briefly in Florida and put his name into an address book. And when that address book got found by the FBI, when they found Don's name, that's what led him to them. And then from Don, it was a jump to me. And as the Washington Post started uncovering various things, because the FBI was leaking stuff to Woodward and Bernstein through Mark Felt. Mark Felt was the number two man at the FBI, and he has become known as Deep Throat. They discover that this guy, Don Segretti, who was Dwight Chapin's friend. Well, I never, never was as close to Richard Nixon as I became, when, as this all started unfolding, because I was part of the battery ram to get into the White House. So while I had nothing to do with the cover-up or the greater Watergate experience, I had hired Don Segretti. And that is the linkage that got to me. The important point that I want to make and that I detail in my book, I go into incredible detail on this, particularly in the appendix. The break-in happens on the 16th, end of the 17th of June. On the Monday after the break-in, John Dean meets with G. Gordon Liddy in Lafayette's Park. And he asks them who at the White House knew. Dean, we know, knew. Maybe not the precise date, but we knew he knew there was going to be a break-in. And he mentions one other person, and that person is Gordon Strawn. Now, when Dean talks to the president as this starts unfolding, he tells the president nobody at the White House knew. He doesn't tell the president he knew. He doesn't tell the president that Gordon Strawn knew. He says nobody at the White House knew. And Nixon is not told that the White House had someone that knew for nine months. The tapes clearly prove that it was in March of 1973 that Nixon was told by Dean that Gordon Strong knew. And he says, I am also culpable. So Nixon is making decisions and trying to figure this thing out for nine months. Now, I want to bring something back to your attention. That I think, clearly is similar to this. And that is that our whiz kid, Robert McNamara, that was Secretary of Defense under Kennedy and was stayed over there with Johnson, wrote a book. And in his book, and this is years later, he admits that he gave false information on the troops and the situation in Vietnam to Lyndon Johnson. In other words, the Secretary of Defense gave false information to the president of the United States, who is trying to figure out how to end the war in Vietnam. We have John Dean, who provides false information to Richard Nixon on what is going on on Watergate. And it is, to me, criminal that these men provide these leaders who they are trusting, with this false information. I think there's going to be a lot of looking in as we move on through this. There's going to be some more investigation on what did Nixon really know? You know, Howard Baker had the right question. What did the president know and when did he know it? And that question, what did the president know and when did he know it, couldn't be answered because the tapes I'm talking about were not released until 19th. Ninety-five. Okay. The prosecutors didn't want the defense to have them. So they weren't released. Okay. So part of what could have been exculpatory material for the men that did end up getting indicted or much more importantly for Richard Nixon himself and his having to resign If this information had been available, in my opinion, Nixon would never have resigned. And also, let me say that, in my opinion, had Gordon Strawn on the 20th of June in the first meeting he had with Bob Haldeman, his boss, if he had said, Bob, you know, I've got to give you some bad news. Here is what happened and told him. Instead, he destroyed documents. He saddled in next to John Dean and they went forward to the Senate and they both lied. And on the tape, when Nixon asks about this, Dean says, don't worry about Strawn, he's already lied twice. And that is in my book, The President's Man.
2: So you ended up being indicted and convicted. You served about eight months, I guess.
1: Nine months.
2: Nine months. Well, let me ask you, Dwight, what was it like to have been a White House official and now to be in a federal prison?
1: Yes, well, I do make the point in my book, I wish I had gone to prison before I went to the White House, because I think I could have been helpful in some of the legislation and other things where understanding what going on in these prisons is important. I will say this. One of the first days I was walking across the quad area at the prison, and this was a low security type prison, not a high security. And out of a window, somebody yelled, Nixon man, hey, Nixon man, hey, Nixon man. And then that kind of got my attention. And a few days later, an inmate kind of shoved me. I was walking down a hallway and they kind of used their elbow. And so I mentioned this to one of the older men that was around there. And they said, you need to go talk to Big Mike Thompson. He has the Black Cultural Workshop. So I went over to what they called his house. It was a two-man room. And I knocked on his door, and the door opened. And there's Big Mike Thompson. He filled the whole doorway. He had come out of Soledad Prison. He was on his way to freedom. But he had to come to this low security thing for a couple of years before he could move forward. I said, Mike, my name's Dwight Chapin. It's been recommended I talk to you. I went into his room. We talked for, I don't know, an hour, maybe more. He became very fascinated with my story. He loved politics. In fact, I had Pat Buchanan autograph one of Pat's books and send it in to him. But anyway, the bottom line was, In talking to Big Mike Thompson, the word went out throughout Lompoc prison and nobody came near me again. So it's one of those things where it has its own culture, its own way of operating. And thank God somebody was smart enough to tell me to go talk to him. And then Mike and I became very, very good friends.
2: And then in 1988, you get back in presidential politics again. What drew you to work on the Bush campaign?
1: Well, actually, I don't know if you know Bill Timmons. Bill Timmons was in congressional relations, outstanding man. So Reagan had a planning group that I was a part of. And we met in Washington. But then the group moved to Detroit for the actual convention period itself. And I got on a plane and I went to Detroit. And when I went to the meeting There were maybe 20 of us in the room and the state chairman from Ohio by the name of Keith Bulan, he went around the table and everybody introduced themselves and so forth. And I introduced myself. He realized who I was and he immediately adjourned the meeting and he pulled me aside and he says, Dwight, we can't have you here because of your participation back with Nixon. And I said, "Okay." I got on an airplane and I flew back to my home in Chicago. I got off the airplane at O'Hare and I called Bill Timmons, who had invited me to be part of this group. I said, Bill, I've just been asked to leave Detroit. He said, you stay right there by that phone. I stayed right there by that phone. He made a phone call and he called me back and he said, you get on the next plane and you go back. He said, I just got off the phone with Ed Meese, and we would be honored to have you participate. And Ed Meese, the guy that ended up being Attorney General of the United States, is the man that made it possible for me to re-enter politics. I went over there. I helped out. I worked all through the convention, all through the back and forth between, should we pick Jerry Ford or who are we going to pick? And then the picking of George Herbert Walker Bush. So that's really when I re-entered back into politics.
2: I'm curious. You've had a remarkable career. And I mean, just your Chinese and Russian experiences would justify a pretty good career. But you've done so many more things. If you were talking to young people, what would you say is the greatest lesson you've learned throughout your political career?
1: Yes, the greatest lesson I learned. First of all, if you get an opportunity to go to Washington and to participate in our government on the Hill or in the executive branch, go do it. We need good, solid people participating. So get in the arena. I love that Teddy Roosevelt man in the arena thing. Get in there. You may lose some, you may win some, whatever. And then be honest, tell the truth. I went to prison, Newt, because it was said that I made false and misleading statements to a grand jury. I don't believe I did that in my heart of hearts. I mean, I know my intent when I went in and I went in and I told the truth, but a jury decided that when I said, not that I recall or not to the best of my memory, by the way, Hillary said, not that I recall, not to the best of my memory about 50 times, but all I had to do is say it once or twice. And I was indicted because Jaworski needed to get somebody as fast as possible to get to Haldeman.
2: By the way, it could also be that if you're a conservative, we actually expect you to remember something. And if you're liberal enough, we know you're not going to remember anything.
1: You've got it. I mean, you've understood all this stuff for years. The game in the House is tilted. By House, I mean the game in Washington. Republicans have it much harder and so forth. But my advice to young people is get in, tell the truth, always tell the truth. And fight for what you believe in. I had a very interesting experience. I got on LinkedIn. I got a young man that got in touch with me who is a foreign affairs advisor to a Democrat member of Congress. And he told me, he said, Dwight, I got involved in foreign policy because when I was a high school student, I studied Richard Nixon. And when I graduated, I went to Beijing and I went to the Chinese University, and I studied Chinese. And I came back. And Richard Nixon is my role model because I want to participate in the foreign policy arena over the years ahead. It blew my mind. I immediately had a Zoom call with this guy. I've introduced him to several other people. For a young person to have an interest like that in Richard Nixon, to me, is fantastic.
2: That's great. I want to thank you for joining me. As I said in my praise for your book, The President's Man, it sheds a unique, interesting light on one of our most complicated and effective presidents. Because of Watergate, few people recall that Nixon was historically popular, remarkably successful. And I think anyone who cares about American history and politics should read The President's Man. And I really recommend our listeners pick up a copy, learn about Nixon from someone who knew him well. It's a fascinating read, and I can't tell you how much I'm grateful that you would spend this kind of time with us.
1: Newt, this has been a real pleasure, and I love sharing these stories with you. Thank you.
2: Thank you to my guest, Dwight Chapin. You can get a link to buy his new book, The President's Man, The Memoirs of Nixon's Trusted Aid, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newsworld World is produced by Gingrich 360, and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of News World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
0: VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville. Talladega. The Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan we win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network.